Let's uh, turn now to the book of Isaiah, chapter 51, and begin reading with verse 1. And we'll read together down through verse 8. Isaiah 51, verse 1. The title of the sermon this morning, Looking Forward by Looking Back. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at the revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God, that you indeed care for us. Your righteousness is eternal. Your salvation endures forever. And Lord, your faithfulness is new every morning. And as we come to your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears, let us hear your word, and may it change our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to give you some context for this particular passage that we read, or that we read, uh, it occurs in a series of chapters known as the Servant Psalms, or the Servant Chapters. And the reason why is because often uh, the, the context refers to the servant of the Lord. And uh, these chapters begin with Isaiah 49, they continue on through Isaiah 55, and right in the middle in Isaiah 51 is our text. But we know from passages like Isaiah 53 that talk about uh, the servant of the Lord coming who's meek and mild, who um, bears the transgressions of his people, that the servant here being referred to is Christ. And these chapters are delivered to Judah, they're delivered to the people of God at a very bleak time in their history. In fact, if you go back and you look at the life of Isaiah, you know that his ministry spanned the reigns of several, uh, at least three different kings and several different generations. And uh, during his lifetime, he had the joy of prophesying under kings such as Hezekiah, who led God's people back to God. Uh, but also he had the challenge of prophesying to the hearts of people 
who were away from God, who were turned away from God and, and intent on doing their own thing. And it was after, actually, the visit of uh, Merodach, the king of Babylon, when he came to visit Judah and he came to visit the palace there in Jerusalem and he came to visit the temple, uh, that the prophet Isaiah delivers this, this particular prophecy. Because the Babylonian king had come in and uh, Isaiah told the king there in Judah that just as you allowed this Babylonian king to see the temple and to see the palaces, even so in the future, the king of Babylon will come and will lead the people of Judah, the people of God, into captivity. And so the Babylonian captivity, the exile, at this point in Judah's history was a certainty. It was something that uh, God had foretold, that the prophet Isaiah uh, had shared with them, and they knew that it was imminent, that it was to come. But it was in this context that a series of chapters, a series of prophecies were delivered that were filled with hope. They were filled with admonishment. They pointed to the coming Redeemer, the Savior, the servant of the Lord who would suffer on behalf of his people. And ultimately they answered the question, has God forsaken his people? What will the end of God's church, of his people, be? Judah's destruction may have been a, a known conclusion. It was near at hand. The king of Babylon would come and would lay siege to the city as he did uh, within, uh, within a 50-year uh, span of time. But the comfort here issued in the text addresses the overarching question of God's people, which is, will God annihilate his people? Will God restore or will God allow his people to suffer desolation? And so ultimately, we see in this passage three different things. And they're uh, the three points that I would like to make this morning. The first is that God's people have a past. And yes, it's a past that is fraught with, um, uh, with apostasy. It's a past that is, that is wrought with uh, rebellion against God. But it's also a past that begins in an intimate relationship between God and his people. A relationship that was initiated by God and a relationship that was sustained by God. And so God is comforting his people by reminding them that they are a people with a past. But that's not all. They're also a people with a promise. And we see this uh, in our text, and we'll look at it more closely in just a minute. And then the third part that we can glean from this, this passage is that God's people are a people with an eternal perspective. Because of our past, because of the past of Judah and the people of God, they had a promise and they had an eternal perspective. God had given them his covenant, he gave them his promise, and he sustained them, and he gave them uh, also an eternal perspective. So let's begin with the first point, which is that uh, God's people have a past. Now, if you look at the first two verses of our text, the prophet Isaiah begins by encouraging those who pursue righteousness to listen to him and all who seek the Lord. And he points them to the rock from which they were hewn and to the quarry from which they were dug. There is a series here in the text, and you'll see this uh, quite frequently throughout Isaiah and the prophets, that uh, a, a series of what they call parallelisms, which is that basically a statement is made and then it is gone back and reiterated or a similar statement is made right afterwards. And so we see this here in our text where Isaiah tells the people to look at the rock from which from which they were hewn and to look at the quarry from which they were dug. And then he says, look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. There are two different things that we realize whenever we stop and we consider Abraham and Sarah. 
particularly relevant to the fact that God's people have a past. And I'm not speaking here about their negative past, about the past of their sinfulness and the rebellion against God, but rather about their origins, how God's people came to be to begin with. And if you know uh, the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you know that God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and he told him to go into a land that he promised to give to his descendants after him. And he said that he would make for him a name and he would make him a blessing and that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The only problem was his wife was barren. Sarah could not bear children. And so Abraham and Sarah, they sojourned together throughout the land of promise as if in a strange land. The book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, tells us that they looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. God gave them this promise of an heir through whom the entire world would be blessed. The promise of a Savior that goes all the way back to the garden. In Genesis 3.15, when the seed of the woman was foretold to crush the serpent's head, there is the promise of the seed that is continued uh, in the line of Abraham. But the problem, not only is, is Sarah barren, but also if you, if you follow the life of Abraham, you know that God continued at least three different occasions in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17 to give Abraham the promise of a son, of an heir. But yet when he was 90 years old, 95 years old, and his wife at that point, who was 10 years younger, would have been 80 and 85, they still had not had a, a son. So there's two challenges here. One is the fact that Sarah is barren, and the other is the fact that they are very old. In fact, you might say that Sarah was postmenopausal because Scripture says the same thing. It was not possible, not humanly possible, for Sarah to have a child. It ceased to be with her, according to the text there in Genesis, after the manner of women, which means that she did not have the ability, uh, physically speaking, to conceive. And so when God challenges his people who are here dwelling under the reprimand, under the certainty that the Babylonians are coming to conquer Jerusalem, he's giving them hope by telling them to look at their past to look at their origins, to look where they came from because their very origins are based in the supernatural, in the impossible. God made a covenant with his people and he fulfilled that covenant. But the very origins of that covenant were not something that were humanly uh, possible. And so when Abraham was a hundred years old and Sarah was 90, they gave birth to their firstborn son. And you know the story. His name was Isaac, Yitzhak, which in Hebrew means laughter. They laughed because what was humanly impossible had been accomplished by God. Now that story is significant. And that story is the one that the prophet Isaiah here is referring to when he challenges the people of Judah to look back to their past to see where they came from. Their origins are in the supernatural. Their origins are humble. Abraham and Sarah were not superior to any other human being on the face of the planet at the time. Instead, in fact, they had every reason to believe that they would not have a child because of their advanced age as well as her barren womb. But God did the miraculous. He caused the impossible to happen through the birth of Isaac. And Isaac was the one with whom God continued his covenantal relationship leading up to this particular time in Judah's history. When the promise that God would sustain them, that God would rebuild them, that God would be with them, even though the Babylonians would no doubt come and destroy their city when it was brought up to them and they were reminded of it. There's something else, though, that I think we need to 
hear the prophet saying to, to ancient Judah and also to us today in this particular admonition to look to Abraham and Sarah. And that is that their righteousness did not derive from themselves. In other words, not only were they physically incapable of having a child, but according to Scripture, they were not righteous by any other means than the imputed righteousness of Christ or righteousness that came through faith. Faith in what? Faith in the coming of the seed that God had promised them. And we see this in Genesis chapter 15 verse 8 where Scripture says Abraham believed the Lord that God was able and that God would indeed fulfill his covenantal promise to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So the past that Judah is being reminded of here in the text is one of humble origins, miraculous in its development, and driven by faith. The prophet is reminding them that without the faith of Abraham, they themselves would not be able to be righteous in the sight of God. The prophet is reminding them that without the supernatural, without the intervention of God in the life of Abraham and Sarah, that the promised seed would not have been born. Now, the reason that I think this was so significant to ancient Judah was because their environment, their surroundings, the context in which they lived was one that would seem to suggest a discrepancy between the God of history and the God of their salvation. Yes, he was the God who did this redemptive, restorative work in the life of Abraham, who made this covenantal promise. Yes, he was the God who continued that covenantal promise through the ages, through Moses, through the 12 tribes of Israel, through the inheritance in the land of Canaan, through setting a king on the throne in Israel, David the king, the promised uh, king of, of Judah. But they looked around and they saw the pending doom. And they saw the condition, the spiritual condition, and the political condition of their day, and they had a hard time reconciling the God of history with the God of their salvation. And so, yes, these are words of hope, but they don't stand alone. They're in the context of a, a people with a past, but also a people with a promise. And I think to apply this to you and I today, we have a challenge as well, sometimes reconciling the God of history with the God of our salvation. We know the great deeds that God has done for his people in the past, but yet we suffer. We know the marvelous stories and the accounts from Scripture and from saints of old that have been handed down through generation of, uh, to generation of the great deeds of God. But yet in our own life, we lose our job. We struggle financially. We lose loved ones. We have heartbreak. And so we too, like ancient Judah, have a hard time reconciling the God of history with the God of our salvation. And when I think about this, I think of a man who was a young man several, in fact, over a century ago. He was 22 years old. He'd recently been married. Uh, he, had, he and his wife had just given birth to two twin boys, and he'd just taken a new pastorate. He'd just assumed the role of pastor of a new church. And on the first Sunday, when he stood in the pulpit and he was preaching to thousands, they, thousands of people packed the auditorium or packed the sanctuary where he was, and he was proclaiming the truth of Scripture. And somebody in the back, some rascal, yelled, Fire! Back then, 150 years ago, to do that would cause people to panic. And it did. People panicked. 
and they began running for the door. But with that many people in one place, unfortunately, it resulted in the death of eight people and several others injured. And so this man named C.H. Spurgeon struggled the rest of his life with a, a depression. And it wasn't just because of this event, but this event exasperated it with depression, spiritual depression, a depression that was so deep. In his words, he described it like this. He said, the mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can bear only a number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Now to some of you this morning, you can identify with that. When C.H. Spurgeon said the soul can bleed in ten thousands of ways and die each hour, for some of you that's a very real statement. You know what that's like. Maybe your soul is bleeding this morning. And maybe in your own life you're having a hard time reconciling the God of the past, the God of history, the God who saved his people, the God who caused the impossible, who brought forth a promised son from a barren womb with the God of your salvation. Well, let me encourage you, not only with Scripture, but also with the words of C.H. Spurgeon himself, who in his later years, shortly before his death, reflecting on the troubles of his own soul, said this. He said, I am sure that I have run more swiftly with a lame leg than ever I did with a sound one. I am certain that I have seen more in the dark than ever I saw in the light. More things in heaven if fewer things on earth. The anvil, the fire, and the hammer are the making of us. In other words, in his own life, he had reconciled the God of history with the God of salvation. And he knew the wonder-working God who had done miracles in the lives of his people for countless centuries, the one who is responsible for the preservation of his church, is active in his life despite his circumstances. So the prophet here points to the past of God's people. And he says, you are a people with the past. Is it a messy past? Yes, but it's also a glorious one. It's a glorious one not because you're a glorious people in and of yourselves, but because God is a glorious God. Now, the second point that I want to make is that not only were the people of Judah people with a past, they were also a people with a promise. And we see this in verses uh, 3, in verse 3, where God said, For the Lord comforts Zion, and he will comfort all her waste places and make her wilderness like Eden. Do you see what he's doing here? The prophet is reminding God's people of Eden. And he's saying, you may have a wilderness right now. You may be struggling with desolate places, but God is going to make those like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. What was special about Eden? Well, many things. It was how we were created to be. It was the way the world was before everything went wrong. But more importantly, it was where God and man walked together in the cool of the day and had an intimate fellowship one with the other. And so what made it Eden blissful was the presence of God. What made the garden of the Lord a great place to be was the fact that God was there. And so hear what the prophet is saying in this promise. What he's telling the people of God is there are desolate places among you. There are wildernesses within you. 
but God is going to make them like Eden and like the garden of the Lord. And so they have this promise. They are a people with a past, a people caught out, a people chosen by God to be a nation that would bear his name among the earth. But they're also a people with a promise that even though life gets messy, even though there is wildernesses, there's desolate places, that God will be faithful and that God will make those places like Eden. That joy and gladness will be found in her, her thanksgiving and the voice of song. They were given a promise that God would be with them and that God would be their God and he would be their people. He would be their, they, that we, they would be his people. This is a consistent promise given throughout scripture. You might say it's what God's number one endeavor has always been. That he would have a people and he would be our God and we would be his people. That he would dwell among us. That we would have sweet communion one with the other. Now, on a level of application, perhaps a more intimate level. I think if you survey the areas of your own life, you will find broken down places. You will find desolate places. You will find a wilderness within the caverns of your own soul. I do. I find places where I'm broken, where I'm sinful. I find places that are too dark for me to want to enter. I find places that I'd much rather hide, places that I'd much rather bar the door and never even consider that they're there. Sometimes they're per, they are perpetuated upon me by outside circumstances, by things beyond my control, and sometimes it's simply the result of my own sinful heart. But to those desolate places, God has given his church a promise. He's given us a promise that because we are his church, because we are his people, with a supernatural origin, an origin which is not dependent upon us or our ability, but is dependent on him and him alone, that he is going to make those desolate places like Eden. In other words, the gospel seeks out the broken down places in your heart, and it speaks to those places with words of life and words of truth and with promises that God will make those places like Eden. And so God's people are a people with a promise that though we may walk through the land of promise as if in a strange land, ultimately we, like Abraham and Sarah, look for a city whose builder and maker is God. When our focus is on God, when our focus is on the gospel, then we know that despite the brokenness in our lives, despite the desolate places within, that God is doing a work. He's promised to do a work. That he will make those places like Eden. In other words, to use the words of C.H. Spurgeon, they will become the anvil, the fire, and the hammer that is the making of us. They will become the means of our testimony, declaring to the world that Christ is faithful. Declaring to the world that Christ and Christ alone has the ability to bring forth fruit from a barren womb, to bring forth life from death, and to bring forth hope from hopelessness. So we are a people with a promise. The third point that I want to make is that we are a people with an eternal perspective. And of course, this is something that the prophet is reminding the people of Judah. They were in a bad way. They were in a bad scenario. They were challenged by outside invaders and by sin and apostasy within. 
But yet, because they were a people with a past and a people with a promise, they had an eternal perspective. And we see this in verses 4 through 8. He didn't leave his people in the past. He didn't simply say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He also said, I am your God, and I want to be among you and for you to be my people. And so he admonishes ancient Judah that his law will go out in salvation that the covenant that he has made with his people is not simply for the nation of Israel, but instead that the ramifications, the blessings of that covenant are to expand into all the earth. That's why he says in verse 4, Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. Now, this is very rem reminiscent of uh, the statement that was made earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah 9-1, when he said that in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is a, a verse that was quoted later by, uh, by Matthew in Matthew's Gospel, the 15th chapter, 5th verse, speaking specifically of Christ, that the coming of Christ would make glorious would be a, a light to those who dwell in darkness and to those who dwell in Galilee of the nations. And so God is here not only proclaiming a promise, but he is also giving them a perspective, a perspective that is greater than today, a perspective that is greater than yesterday, but a perspective that is the perspective of eternity. It's an eternal perspective. So he commands his people, lift your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath in verse 6. Now that's reminiscent. If you remember when God appeared to Abraham the second time in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham was filled with doubt because yes, God had promised him a son, but he had yet to receive one. And God told him, look up to the heavens. He said, lift your eyes to the heavens and count the stars if you can number them and look and count the sands of the, of the seashore if you can number them. And so here in language that is very reminiscent of the Abrahamic covenant, God tells his people to lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. But then he talks about the temporality, the fact that everything that you and I see is temporal, that it's fleeting. He says the heavens will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment. They who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. He's giving them a perspective that is bigger than their desolate situation. He's given them a perspective that is bigger than the time that you and I spend in this lifetime on earth. It's an eternal perspective. It's a perspective that is infused with the past, making sense of the present and giving us hope for the future. It's a perspective that enables us to lift our eyes to the heavens and make sense of the world that we live in. It's a, it's a perspective that enabled God's people, the people of Judah, to look around them, even though there had been this imminent promise, this imminent prophecy of, of invasion and ruin and desolation because of the sin within and the oppression from without, and to tell them, but look up, because all of this will pass away, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Then he says, listen to me, you who know righteousness. Now contrast this with the very first verse. 
He said, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Now he's saying, listen to me, you who know righteousness. He's speaking here specifically of those who have been regenerated, those who are saved, those who are called out. Not simply the members of, of Israel, but also of all nations that Christ with his coming will call to himself. He speaks to them, those who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. That's a sign of the covenant. If you remember in Jeremiah 31, one of the hallmarks, one of the characteristics of the new covenant was that God would write his law on their hearts. And so he is here uh, telling them uh, to look to him. Those who, who know righteousness, those who have been regenerated, and those who have his law written in their heart. He says, Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at the revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. The temporality of our current situation is contrasted with the eternality, the eternalness of God's glorious design. And so God is encouraging his people that his righteousness will be forever and his salvation to all generations. He's enabling them to have an eternal perspective. And what, what informs, according to Scripture, this eternal perspective are the past actions of God, the fact that God called them, that he chose them. And his covenant and his work of, of, of redemption, covenantally speaking, through Abraham and through Moses and through the giving of the law. And finally, there's a skeletal structure there of the promise of the new covenant. He's enabling them through his promise and through their calling to have an eternal perspective. So what does it look like for you and I today? We, we see here in the text what it looked like for ancient Judah to have an eternal perspective, to trust that God would be with them and that God would redeem his people even if and even when the Babylonians came to invade. What does it look like for us today to have an eternal perspective in our everyday life? When I've lost my job or my home, or my family is sick or my car breaks down or, or when I'm ill or when I'm depressed, when I'm lonely, what does it look like to have and maintain an eternal perspective? perspective? The answer, I would suggest, is in the very suffering servant that this passage and others adjacent to it are, are directing our attention to, and that is in the very incarnation of Christ. Because in Christ, in his incarnation, we see that God through Christ entered the messiness of life. And even though he could walk on water, he fell beneath the weight of his own cross. Even though he was the son of God, he had to be potty trained. Even though he is the great I am, he submitted himself to the guidance and leadership of his parents. Christ, who is our great high priest, who came into this world as the very in, in, incarnate one, the word among us, God among us, he is the one who shows us beautifully what it's like to have an eternal perspective. He, under, he understands and he identifies with everything that you and I go through. The sorrows of our hearts and the storms of our souls, nothing surprises him. The pain and the blackness of our sin, He's not shocked. Instead, he understands. And he points us to our past. He points us to who we are in him. He points us to our present, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And he points us to our future, that we are not yet who we shall be, but when he appears, 
we should be likened to him. So an eternal perspective does not deny our humanity. It embraces it. It does not deny that we're suffering. It embraces the suffering. And it says, even in this, there is the fingerprint of God. That even in this, there is the anvil upon which the soul of my, uh, that my soul and my heart is being shaped and made into the likeness of Christ my King. So we are called to embrace the suffering with a conscious awareness that our new humanity created in Christ ultimately is a reality now and in the future. It's an eternal perspective that looks forward by looking back, not back to our origins or our date of birth, but back to Calvary. It's an eternal perspective that looks forward by looking back to the very call of God. We see our trials not simply as vexations of the heart, but as victories victories of the advancing kingdom of God. We see the desolate places, the wildernesses within, not simply as bleak, dark moments, dark nights of the soul, but as opportunities for the gospel of Christ to triumph and for the reality of who he is and who he declares to be to be made known in our lives. We see our way forward by looking through the lens of the gospel. And the gospel looks to Calvary. It looks back. It reminds us that we are a people created in the image of God, but that image has been marred by our rebellion and sin, but that Jesus Christ in his coming came so that you and I might be recreated, a new humanity, a new people in the image of Christ, God's dear son. And so we look forward by looking to Christ. We look forward by looking to him with whom we have to do by looking to his salvation, by looking to his redemption, by looking to his restorative work in our hearts. Now, how does this affect your life tomorrow? When you get up and you go about your way, I would suggest it affects your life significantly. To know that you have purpose, you have a past, and you have a promise, and you have a future. And that your past informs your future. That who you and I are in Christ sets the pathway forward. That we can make sense of the messiness of this life. The sin and the pain of our own heart. Because of who Christ is and who he declares us to be. Have we arrived? No. Are any of us sitting in this church this morning perfect or even halfway there? I'm certainly not but who I am is a new creation. Who I am is a work in process. Who I am is a redeemed child of God with a past, with a promise, and by God's grace with an eternal perspective. And it is that eternal perspective that informs how I live my life, that informs how I experience trials and suffering, and that enables me to look at pain and see it as an anvil upon which God is molding together the meadow of my heart. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, you are the Savior of your people, a people, Lord, whom you have called as your own, a people with a past, a glorious one, and a people with a promise, and a people with the perspective of eternity 
We live in light of who you are and, and who you declare us to be with knowledge that because you live, we shall live also. And though this life be fleeting, we know that the life you give is eternal. And so we pray, Lord, that you would enable us by your grace as we think about the trials, as we think about the pain and the sin within our own hearts, that you would direct our attention to the cross, that you would direct our attention, Lord Jesus, to you, and that our life would be a testimony to the victory of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.